Good evening. And thank you very much for coming. I'm, I'm duly impressed. I think this is probably the only city in the world, with the possible exception of Tokyo, that could draw this kind of a crowd uh, for a Mishima Yukio evening. And thanks so much for being here. I want to focus this evening um, on the social and cultural significance of Yukio Mishima's life and death, because I believe he presents us with a paradigm of the cultural ambivalence that has beset Japan since the country was opened to the West in the late 19th century after 250 years of isolation. By cultural ambivalence, I mean the ongoing struggle to find an authentic stance and voice in the modern world by reconciling native values and sensibilities anchored in tradition on the one hand and Western modes of being in the world on the other. This quest for synthesis of two often irreconcilable cultures has produced a recurrent malaise akin to a national identity crisis that continues to shape much of Japanese behavior today. Kenzaburo Oe, who continues to hate Mishima implacably, spoke of this dilemma in his Nobel laureate address delivered in Stockholm in 1994. Speaking in English, Oe said, quote, my observation is that after 20, 120 years of its modernization since the opening of the country, present-day Japan is split between two opposite poles of ambiguity. I, too, am living as a writer with this polarization imprinted on me like a deep scar. Mishima, whose lifestyle was irrepressibly Western, at least on the surface, voiced the same lament in his own way again and again. On November 25, 1970, he delivered cultural ambivalence the final coup de grace when he committed suicide in the most Japanese way imaginable by Harakiri. I assume many of you are familiar with this, but just for the record, let me take you through it very, very briefly. As you remember, at 10.50 on that morning, he visited the commandant of the Tokyo Battalion of the Self-Defense Force on the pretext of showing him an antique Japanese sword. He was accompanied by four adets, cadets from his private army, the Shield Society, pledged to defend the emperor. At a prearranged signal, the cadets seized and bound the general, and Mishima ordered him to assemble the troops in the courtyard below. Just before noon, he stepped out on the balcony and delivered a short speech appealing to the soldiers to join him and his men in death as true men and as samurai in a battle against a post-war democracy that had deprived Japan not only of its army, but of its soul. The soldiers booed and jeered. After seven minutes, Mishima stepped inside again and cut himself open with a sword. At his grunted signal, his second-in-command, who was also his lover, beheaded him, then committed Harakiri himself. Mishima's death was problematic and remains so. In the biography I wrote shortly after he died, I argued that his suicide had been driven by the longing for death that he'd be in touch with and intermittently terrified by since his childhood, and that the patriotism he formulated during the last 10 years of his life was essentially a sham, a device to enable him to achieve the warrior's death, which was at the heart of a homoerotic fantasy that he had fully conceived by the time he was 12. I found evidence to support this view in much of what he wrote, even as a teenager. And I remain persuaded that his final act was at least in some part private and erotic rather than public and patriotic. That sped, having spent time studying Japanese history since I wrote that book, I see now that in my determination to account for the suicide in terms of personal pathology, I failed to see or to take seriously its larger social significance. Mishima lived a lifestyle that was flamboyantly Western in style and manners. He dressed in flashy Italian suits and smoked Cuban cigars. When he built his house in 1958, 
has told his architect that he wanted to sit in a Rococo chair in jeans and a lower shirt. The result was a melange of Greek statuary and French period furniture that was like a movie set and made many Japanese who received invitations to his cocktail parties on Tiffany stationery horribly uncomfortable. One night when I had met him, uh, I didn't know him long, I was sitting in his house late at night and he asked me somewhat abruptly if I'd seen the Marlon Brando film, The Wild Ones. When I said yes, he asked me whether I would look at a pair of jeans that he had been working on with sandpaper to give him a definitive verdict as an American whether he had achieved the Brando look. He dashed out of his study, leaving me stunned and speechless, and returned wearing the jeans. And when I told him that he was a spitting image of Marlon, he beamed with a smile of immense pleasure. So Mishima was, in many ways, infatuated with Western styles and modes, and he was, of course, also an avid reader of all kinds of Western writers, including Gide and Cocteau, Novalis, Henry Miller and Fitzgerald, and Truman Capote and Hemingway, both of whom uh, he admired extravagantly in the kind of paradox that he was famous for. At the same time, he had a prodigious knowledge and understanding of the entire canon of classical Japanese literature and could write fluently and beautifully in the language of the Heian court or the medieval period. In fact, by the time he was a teenager, he had conceived a vision of himself as the final heir to the entire tradition of classical Japanese beauty. This exalted vision informed a 100-page story called A Forest in Full Flower that he wrote in 1941 at the age of 16. It was a dazzling tour de force written in the elaborate style of the tale of Genji, and it left the adults who were his mentors and champions speechless with admiration. Here is the youthful narrator, quote, now beauty is a gorgeous runaway horse, but there was a time when it was reined in and stood quivering in its tracks and neighing at the misty morning sky. The horse was clean and pure then, graceful beyond compare. Now severity has let go the reins and the horse runs headlong, stumbles, its flanks caked with mud. Yet there are times even now when a man is endowed with the eyes to see the phantom of an immaculate white horse. It is just such a man that our ancestors are searching for gradually they will come to abide in him. So Mishima is, of course, talking about himself. The war years, particularly the firebombing of Tokyo in 1944 and 45, fanned the flames of Mishima's fantasy of beauty and death and privileged destiny. As he would later reflect with the wonderful clarity he often had about himself, quote, the narcissism at the border separating adolescence from adulthood will make use of anything for its own ends. At 20, I was able to fancy myself as a genius destined for an early death, as a decadent among decadents even as beauty's kamikaze squad. In 1949, Mishima established himself as a best-selling author with Confessions of a Mask, a chronicle of his homosexual awakening that was in part an attempt to disempower the obsession with erotic death that was beginning to frighten him by accounting for it clinically and diagnosing it away. In 1951, he set out on his first trip to the West and embarked on his classical period a conscious effort fueled by his superhuman discipline to put death behind him once and for all. The first entry in his diary of the journey, Apollo's Glass, indicates his determination to become a new man. Quote, sun, sun, perfect sun. Today I did not watch the sunset. Having spent the day gazing love-struck at the sun, I had no heart to see her in her ancient, feeble makeup. In my boyhood, I felt that the sunset was the only justification for the sun's existence. As I bared myself to the sun today, I felt throughout my body the joy of release from the oversensitive stubbornness of my youth. On his return from this trip, in which he visited New York and Rio, where he misbehaved somewhat, and then finally Greece, um, Mishima began the regimen of weightlifting uh, that he continued for the rest of his life and that transformed him from the scrawny weakling whose nickname at school had been asparagus 
into the muscle man you will see in some of Mr. Josue's wonderful photographs. Uh, he also wrote uh, on his return as evidence of his re rehabilitation, um, The Sound of Waves, his best-selling book ever, from which several films were subsequently made, the only love story he ever wrote that was neither perverted nor sardonic. Ten years later, when I was translating The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea and had the good fortune to spend many evenings in his study at his home, uh, I began a rhapsody about this book, which I had just read, uh, running on a bit about the purity and the innocence of the fisher boy and the diving girl and so on. And I shall never forget how Mishima watched me, and then when I had finally concluded my rhapsody, uh, he said with his cigarette dangling out of his, from his lips, um, that was a joke I played on my readers, a lie. And then he closed his eyes and did this sort of a gesture as if he were writing the book uh, with his eyes closed. It was a mortifying and chagrinning moment uh, for me. <clears throat> By that time, of course, he was already back in the grip of the death-written romanticism he had worked so hard to exercise and moving rapidly in the direction that would end with his suicide. Today, I no longer believe in that ideal known as classicism, he wrote in his diary in 1963, and I have already begun to feel that youth and the flowering of youth are foolishness. What remains is the concept of death, the only truly enticing, truly vivid, truly erotic concept. For all I know, that 26-year-old, that classicist who felt about himself that he was as close as possible to life, was a dissembler, a fraud. Leaping ahead now to July 1968, at that moment, Mishima published an essay titled In Defense of Culture, an elaborate disquisition on identity. He argued that the Japanese were Japanese by virtue of Japanese culture, that the emperor was the source of culture, specifically that his imperial majesty was the emanating source of miyabi, a value in Japanese classical aesthetics that is usually defined as courtly elegance, as epitomized in the tale of Genji. In Mishima's singular definition, Miyabi was the essence of court culture and the people's longing for that essence. If the Japanese ever hoped to regain their connection to Miyabi, the aesthetic quality that defined them, they must protect the emperor at any cost. Here, for the final time, Mishima evoked the longing for the connection to the cultural past and specifically to the traditional beauty of the past, which he had first expressed as a young man in the forest in full flower. It's very important to realize, and this is the point I'd like to make most emphatically, that Mishima was not alone in his sense of discontinuity with the defining past. The terrorism on both the right and the left that characterized the 1960s following the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty were evidence of a growing national uneasiness and imbalance in the aftermath of the MacArthur Constitution imposed on Japan during the occupation. And if American democracy was proving to be a not entirely satisfactory substitute for wartime values, neither was the frantic pursuit of gross national product that was being promulgated as the new national mission. By the late 60s, Japan's company man, the cog in the wheel of the economic miracle, was tired, hemmed in, too busy to take his annual one-week vacation, and beginning to wonder why life was affording him so little gratification despite his hard work and new prosperity. Something was missing. The emerging consumer class was finding that the acquisition of wealth and property was not, after all, a goal worth living for. Asked what that goal might be, no one would have answered a reconnection with traditional beauty achieved by a warrior's death. Nonetheless, the emptiness and the uncertainty about his own existence that Mishima was suffering increasingly was endemic in Japan. Unquestionably, Mishima's suicide was personal and idiosyncratic, fully comprehensible only in the light of his lifelong erotic fantasies. At the same time, it should be understood as an unbearably lucid and apposite expression of a national affliction, the agony of cultural disinheritance. One final tiny word about Mishima's place in Japan today. 
The government and the general public were furious and chagrined at the Mishima incident, which came just as Japan was re-emerging onto the global scene as a major world economy. By 1980, except for a small number of Mishima worshippers on the far right, he had been largely forgotten. Recently, he has been rediscovered, and there's currently a full-scale Mushima boom in progress. On the 30th anniversary of his suicide in November 2000, his publisher released the first volume of a new complete works of Yukio Mishima in 42 volumes. So far, the first 14, the major novels, have appeared, and each volume has sold between five and 6,000 copies at a price of $50 a book. This is an astonishing statistic when Japanese book sales in Japan are currently at an all-time post-war low. There's an explanation for this. By 1988, the bubble economy had created unprecedented affluence in Japan, and the Japanese were disporting themselves like the princes of the known universe. In 1990, the economy took a plummeting fall from which it has yet to recover. By the middle of the decade, familiar, troubling questions about identity and the purpose of life were in the air again, and a brash new nationalism was emerging. It seems clear that this environment has disposed Japanese readers to reassess Mishima and to find meaning for themselves in his work and his final act, evidence that he understood their current plight and might even serve as a beacon to guide them out of confusion and disheartenment to a rediscovery of self. Thank you. John seems to have covered a number of the questions that I'm about to raise. Some years ago, I interviewed my near contemporary Haruki Murakami for another pen event, and I inevitably asked him a question about Mishima. His response was something of a brush off, as I recall. He said that he wasn't really familiar with Mishima. He'd read him in school and not at all since, <clears throat> and he made it clear that he didn't really like Mishima. He was annoyed by the question. And this was more or less the response that I had been expecting. At least at that time, for many contemporary Japanese, Mishima was something of an embarrassment. And I suspect he still is. I remember when I first arrived in Japan as a teacher in 1979, partly inspired by my enthusiasm for Mishima with a copy of Sun and Steel in my suitcase, <clears throat> that my questions about him were greeted with impatience and even irritation by my students. Why do you gaijin always talk about Mishima? One of my students asked me one night. He was a very strange Japanese. His ritual suicide, his final call to cast off Western influences and his <clears throat> in return to traditional Japanese values, including veneration of the emperor, has made him for a long time something of a bad joke in his homeland. There is also a touch of parricide in Murakami's response, which calls to mind the kind of critical dismantling of Hemingway in the 60s and the 70s in this country. Mishima was the looming figure in post-war Japanese letters, and nobody likes to be loomed over. Writers like Murakami and Banana Yoshimoto are from another world, really, a post-Mishima Japan, probably the first generation of Japanese writers since Natsume Soseki, for whom Japan's uniqueness in its relation to the West is not necessarily an explicit theme, is not necessarily the theme, whose characters listen to Brahms 
and the Beatles unselfconsciously, <clears throat> as indeed do most of their contemporaries, who eat miso soup for breakfast and hamburgers for lunch, who wear kimonos to a wedding and Prada to a club. Consciously or not, this newer fiction resents something of a rejection of the generation of Tanizaki and Mishima. Uh, as, as John explained, Mishima himself had a Western-style house. Um, I'm told that the French period dining room was a little over the top. Um, and he was thoroughly versed in Western literature. <clears throat> he was a cosmopolitan figure whose literary influences included Aeschylus and Dostoevsky and de Sade, one of those rare Japanese of his generation who profoundly understood the West. However, his seppuku seems to have made him seem more remote to us and to the contemporary Japanese who have turned him into <clears throat> and who have turned him into just the kind of oriental hothouse literary exotic that he despised. At the moment, he seems stranded somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. For Americans, he's often seen as a kind of beautiful icon of Japanese exoticism and inscrutability, while for the Japanese, <clears throat> He is sometimes seen as the talented nutcase, beloved of the gaijin. I remember being indignant when the Chris Christopherson version of the sailor who fell from grace of the sea came out about 20 years ago. You'll remember that this is a story of a sailor who gives up the sea in order to marry a widow, and the gang of teenage nihilists who, having admired him as a sailor, decide to murder him once he betrays his lonely destiny and comes ashore. As a fledgling Orientalist back then, I told myself that the story didn't make sense removed from its Japanese context. I haven't seen the movie since it first appeared, but rereading the novel recently, I came to suspect that I was wrong about the cultural specificity of that story. I have to wonder if some young Japanese fan of Lord of the Flies would object as strenuously to a Japanese film version of that novel which is to say that I think some of Mishima's Western admirers are too content to exoticize him and to insist upon his citizenship in what he himself contemptuously called the flower-arranging nation. No artist embodied the tortured contradictions of post-war Japan as thoroughly as Mishima, the homosexual who worried about Japan's effeminate image, the intellectual who championed the realm of the senses and the physical over the claims of words and ideas, the sickly esthete who turned himself into a modern-day samurai. At the same time, though, his paradoxes and contradictions <clears throat> uh, between Apollo and Dionysus, word and world, thought and action, were thoroughly transcended or to put it in the context of the time that I first came under his spell, it was as if <clears throat> he was both William Gass and John Gardner at the same time. <clears throat> For me, at that time in the mid-70s, he seemed far more vital than any American literary figure. I think one of the tasks of a reassessment of Mishima is to go back to the novels themselves, which are astonishingly diverse, and to stop seeing him as a representative figure at the risk of robbing Mishima's life of the perfect shape which he seemed to want to impose on it, I'm not sure that it would hurt to try to imagine what we would make of his oeuvre if he had, say, died in a car crash in 68 or 69, or an aneurysm on his way out the door on that final day in 1970, moments after completing the first installment of The Sea of Fertility. To recall, Mishima, <clears throat> to, to recall the Mishima that the world knew before he killed himself 
an international literary figure, the most successful Japanese literary export of the 20th century, and a writer who has as much in common with Hemingway as he does with Lady Murasaki. We might do well to try and recontextualize Mishima somewhat and to celebrate, celebrate his contradictions rather than seeing them as solved by his death. We need to rescue him from the mists <clears throat> which serve to obscure him. We need to see him in relation to his contemporaries like his sometimes mentor Yasunori Kawabata, who I believe is right above us here, who called Mishima the kind of talent that comes along only once every two or three hundred years. Kawabata was the writer <clears throat> most admired by the gaijin in Kyoto in the late 70s when I was there, the one who seemed to represent a pure Japanese spirit untainted by Western influence, all those geishas, tea masters, and go masters. Mishima was a great admirer of Kawabata, <clears throat> although he seems to have written a somewhat unflattering portrait of the master in his novel Forbidden Colors. And he also saw himself in opposition to Kawabata. Mishima used to rail against the idea of Japan as a nation of flower arrangers, against the insular aestheticism of much of Japanese literature and culture. Kawabata's aristocratic esthetes <clears throat> are the epitome of the flower arranging nation, and some of his novels to westernize are often more a series of beautiful tableau than novels, like for instance, The Tale of Genji. Lady Murasaki's narrative, written some 600 years before Don Quixote, <clears throat> is a weirdly fascinating narrative of erotic and court intrigue and represents what Mishima saw as the feminine aesthetic in Japanese literature, the rarefied world of the Heian court. Mishima eventually seems to have seen himself as rep resurrecting a more vigorous tradition of martial epic and the samurai ideal represented by such post-Genji works as the Heiki Monogatari, written 200 years later. <clears throat> but it's important to remember that he also, especially early in his career, acknowledged his debt to Western literary traditions. When he was asked by an interviewer about the negativity of his protagonists, he, blamed, <clears throat> he put the blame squarely on Western literary models. We have learned mental disease and shame from the West, he said. <clears throat> this is actually a very Japanese statement. His first novel, Confessions of a Mask, is the coming-of-age story of a young man discovering his own difference from his peers in the world into which he was born, and fits squarely into the so-called I-novel tradition of Japanese autobiography. But it also records his encounters with Western culture and literature, from the famous picture of Saint Sebastian pierced with arrows, to Greek drama. The epigraph comes from the brothers Karamazov. Quote, beauty is a terrible and awful thing. It begins, and one wonders what Kawabata would say to that. It continues, it is terrible because it is ne never has and never can be fathomed, for God sets us nothing but riddles. Within beauty, both shores meet, and all contradictions exist side by side. This theme reaches its culmination in the great masterpiece of Mishima's middle period, King Kakuji, the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, in which a young Buddhist priest feels enthralled and enslaved and finally negated by the beauty of the gold-plated temple in Kyoto where he studies and finally burns it to the ground in order to free himself. Although it's based on a real incident in Japanese history, it seems to me to be a direct descendant of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. I don't mean to suggest that Mishima is best understood as a Western writer or that we can or even should wish away the Japanese context of his work. 
I'm not sure I want to go back and see the Christofferson version of the sailor who fell from grace through the sea, nor do I think we can really pretend that he died in a car wreck. On the other hand, <clears throat> I don't think it is irrelevant or uncharacteristic, or un <clears throat> I don't think that we should overly privilege the strange nationalistic rhetoric and political obsessions of his final years, as many have done in order to dismiss him. I think it's reductive to view Mishima's entire oeuvre as a suicide note. The novels and stories are stunningly diverse in a protean body of work, from the, <clears throat> from the lyrical heterosexual love story of Sound of Waves, through the homoerotic confessions of a mask in forbidden color, to the vast epic of the Sea of Fertility, which I believe to be one of the masterpieces of 20th century fiction. The next time I see Haruki Murakami, I'm going to urge him to go back and read them. Thank you. I was in Japan in 1958, and much later I wrote about it, and I'm reading from the book uh, and taking little passages from it. In Tokyo, I spent an evening with Yukio Mishima, who came to my hotel with the uh, Tutsumo Shimamura of Chuo Koron, a leading intellectual review. We got on. The memory must affect what I write here. But that alone does not entitle me to brood on his life and works. His death, however, was a public act and the work a public offering. The world is invited, commanded to brood. Place his suicide in the Western context, or the Japanese one, or in both, where I think it most significantly belongs. Trace his progression toward it. Hear it in every book, its pure, fell sound. True, only his last act has given us this after-event wisdom. But has he succeeded in that final coincidence of flesh and mind he hoped for? We had met once before in Tokyo, in New York, at a Gotham Bookmark party for James Baldwin, where Mishima had looked as anyone does under such circumstances, tentative, interestedly afloat on a sea of foreign context. This second time, I had brought Keen, Donald Keene's wedding present to him, uh, the translator of his books. To this, I could only add my awareness that a writer's presence is always less subtle than the actuality. We did not really talk of literature. He was a handsome man, I thought, with a coherence of face and form. Though I felt very tall in Japan, and he was shorter, he did not appear small. Though Japanese faces had already lost their masks for me and begun dissolving into types, I couldn't tell whether his face was as guarded a one to other Japanese as it seemed to me. Some triangular proportion in it, broad-based at the brows, made one look at eyes and mouth separately. Hindsight sees how such a face might empathize alternately as his work would with both the ugly and the beautiful. 
We laughed a lot that evening, and most of it was laughter over intramural jokes, not embarrassment or an occidental misinterpretation. Reading the glinting humor of the novel After the Banquet five years later, I remember this. When he and his friend kept saying how oriental I looked, I told them how my daughter's boarding school had surreptitiously asked her, was I an Eurasian? We sat bright-eyed, sympathetically comfortable, and language hampered. The one remark I never forgot he made, he made it with, with utter seriousness. He told me he was building a Dutch colonial house. It had its pertinence. Very shortly, as my journal shows, I was to be sick with what was glibly called cultural shock. At the time, I knew what it was, but hadn't the wit to say. I was smelling the sweat of the dragon fight, that odor of burnt ideologies, smoked out shrines, commingled loins, and potsherds which down the ages must hang invisibly over those silent inner battlegrounds wherever two civilizations are trying to engorge one another. I was seeing how a nation under occupation was dealing with its, quote, conqueror, and how we dealt with them. And what are artists if not to deal with this? Mishima, born in 1925, educated at the Pierce School, where the fire, the Spartan fires of mil militarism still burned, graduating as its highest honor student, mid-war, spent half his life under the clangor of historical glory, and all his manhood with the American conqueror standing sentinel at every street corner of Japan's culture. Grounded deeply in his own literature, he was widely read in Western, classical and modern, and evidently far beyond that French influence so marked in writers like Kawabata and Desai, which was now waning, though it would linger in him, in his debt to their diarists. Uh, I remember that I told him uh, that although in my own country I had never heard any colleague of mine mention Novalis, the uh, poet who died early, 18th century, or Amiel, the, uh, Ernel, the uh, uh, author of the Journal Antime, I met his, their names in his works. Uh, particularly, I think, as I remember, in that strange and wonderful book called Sun and Steel. Mishima's first account in Sun and Steel, and it's very much like, I think, there's a book by Jean-Paul Sartre, <coughs> excuse me, um, called uh, The Words, and it couldn't be more applicable. Uh, his first account, Mishima's in Sun and Steel, is of a child himself who, as it were, the opposite of one of Bethlehem's autistics, refused to perceive the body and was led into reality through words. 
In time, words, however useful and power of fetish, become the corrosive evil and, quote, ideas foreign to that romantic ideality of the body which he craves. In his attempt to straddle and manipulate the two, he becomes the novelist, but only increasing further his, quote, thirst for reality and the flesh, close quote. In this small book, most certainly a classic of self-revelation, his pursuit of that, quote, second language is examined with such dispassion and self-insight that paraphrase must only distort. We are in the range now of a metaphysics where every sentence counts and delivers its poignant message with a shock. He, this is a quote. As a personal history, it will, I suspect, be unlike anything seen before, he says. And he is right. In his journey from the black sticks of the inner life to the blue sky of the outer, as reflected in ordinary men's eyes, he sees at every point the parallel, parable of his own life. He's taking us down that psychic canal in very nearly complete consciousness. In dealing with sun and steel, as with all missionists' work, one is encountering a mind of the utmost subtlety, broadly educated, in whose novels, for instance, the range may even appear terrifying or cynical to those who demand of a writer steadily apparent or even monolithically built views. These are there, indeed, touchable at every point in his work, but the variation of surface and seeming reversals of heart or statement sometimes obscure this, and the Western split may have done it in his work as in his life, so that, as he foresaw, his death better explains both, leaving us to review the explanation. Mishima's Western scholarship is very touching, all the more for the possibility that as he rejected words for body, dead literature for live action, or tried to bring the two down to the average coherence, he was also denying the Western impurities that had early ensnared him. For everywhere, his references to our literature, our martyrs, are hallowed, reverent to what he borrows or admires, and sometimes as old-fashioned as our own youth. When since have I heard mention of Amiel or seen a modern writer lean on him? He takes our classics as seriously as we did once, as a matter for life and death. And death, he does illuminate and widen for us, but in a paradox he might well have anticipated, only when he takes his own unique path of experience and learning, not ours. For though he makes analogies with the martyrs of a Christianized West, in the end, the once proud grail of Western existence, addled and dusty 
as this has come to be, eludes him. What does not occur to him is that the sought death may be as artificial as imagination against the sought life. Still, he is telling us that life, that death is one of life's satisfactions. We may not be able to believe it, or may wish that death had, no so, had not so enhanced itself for him. But he tells us how he came to this pass with a sanity that ought to be exquisite enough for our own and crosses cultures to do it, to tell us how a man bent on seppuku might come so, might come to it by way of Saint Sebastian. Can Westerners understand such a death as easily as they understand dying like a pinched gray flab in a hospital? Or accept the artist who tosses his life in the balance as easily as they do those who jerk to the very end of the galvanizing money string or distill their life knowledge only in teaspoonfuls for the applause of a coterie? Mishima is explaining his life and death in admirable style, in words that hold their breath so that the meaning may breathe, and in a low voice just, just short of the humble, on the highest terms of that arrogance which decrees him the right to do so. Our souls may be, not be cognate, but he makes us feel again what it is to have one and understand the persuasion of his. If he had been otherwise in his youth, a porter, a woman, a dancer, the tower of his symbols might have built another way. But to ask him to break out of the mystic cage of his logic is like asking it of Thomas Akempis or Augustine or to be a Catholic praying for the conversion of the Jews. What he is telling us is that he is a priori this kind of man, and that insofar as we cannot break out of the cage of our bones, so are we. Here is not a man with an opinion. He is telling us how he was made to paraphrase him in words not his, or with muscles not his, is to try to build a china pagoda with a peck of nails. Sun and steel's power is that it is a book one must experience step by step, led as if by a monk or a great film master, from inner tissue to outer and back again along his way. It is not necessary to accept that way, but only the frivolous will not empathize with what is going on here. This is a being for whom life and death too must be exigent and were.
good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am Eiko Hosoe, a photographer from Tokyo. <clears throat> it is a great honor for me to speak on this special occasion about my collection of photographs of Barakei, or Ordeal by Roses, and my experience of photographing Yukio Mishima. <clears throat> Barakei began one day in September 1961 as a result of an assignment from the Japanese publisher <clears throat> Kodansha. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was commissioned to photograph Yukio Mishima for the cover of Mishima's book of critical essays, which Kodansha was about to publish. I knew Mishima by name, but I had never met him before. I was curious as to why I had been given such an important assignment, and I was told by the editor over the phone that I had been chosen at Mishima's special request. <clears throat> I instantly uh, accepted the offer, but the question still remained as to why Mishima had chosen me. Soon the editor and I were to meet Mishima, and I hoped to discover the reason for Mishima's request and at the same time have an opportunity to photograph him. A taxi was hired to take us to Mishima's house. We drove about 30 minutes from central Tokyo towards Omori Station. The cabs suddenly turned, turned in front of a public bathhouse, then followed a narrow path, turned sharply, and brought us in front of Mishima's remarkable house. After entering the Iron Gate, there were a few steps and a straight path about 30 feet long to the front door. <clears throat> to the left was a traditional Japanese house, and to the right, a flat lawn. In the center of the lawn was a mosaic zodiac made of black and white marble, about five feet in a diameter. <clears throat> On the veranda, Mishima, half naked and wearing dark glasses, was sunbathing in a white garden chair. On a table, there was a tray with a cup of black tea and a half-finished grapefruit. It appeared that Mishima had just finished breakfast, alone at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. After bowing formal greeting, Mishima began to speak as if I already knew, uh, he already knew my first question. I loved your photographs of Tatsumi Hijikata. I want you to photograph me like that. So I asked my editor to call you. Mr. Mishima, do you mean I can photograph you in my own way? I asked. Yes, I am your subject matter. Photograph me however you please, Mr. Hosoe. He replied. All my questions and anxiety faded. <clears throat> Tatsumi Hijikata was one of my great friends, and he was very close to me then. He was the originator of Buto, a form of dance that is now known worldwide. He was devoted to uh, Mishima's writing. 
1959, Hijikata's first major dance performance in Tokyo was based on Mishima's novel, Kinjiki, or Forbidden Colors. Tatsuhiko Shibusawa, a novelist and authority on Marquis Sad, who was close to both Mishima and Hijikata, wrote that Hijikata had thrilled Mishima. My photographs of Hijikata, to which Mishima referred, were from a thin catalog for Hijikata's dance performance titled Eiko Hosoe's Photographic Collection Dedicated to Tatsumi Hijikata, and it included a number of images of Hijikata selected from the series Men and Women that I photographed between 1959 and 1960. <clears throat> I soon realized Mishima never wanted a banal portrait of an author. If in offering himself as the subject matter of my photographs, I thought he might have wanted to become a dancer himself. I was still in my 20s then, so I was young and naive. I did not make the distinction between an inter international literary figure and a dancer. Mishima's father happened to be watering the garden, so I grabbed his hose and I wrapped Mishima's entire body in the hose and kept him standing in the center of zodiac where he was planning to erect a statue of Apollo. I asked him to look up and concentrate on my camera, which I was holding from a ladder above. I shouted, keep looking at my lens very in intensely, Mr. Mishima. Okay, that's great, keep going. He never blinked while I shot two rolls of 35 millimeter film. I am proud of my ability to keep my eyes open for minutes, said Mr. Mishima. <laughs> I have never been photographed like this, he said. Why did you do it in this way? This is the destruction of a myth, I replied. You should wrap a hose around Haruo Sato, he laughed. Haruo Sato was considered to be a literary giant at the time. What I really meant was that I wanted to destroy preconceived ideas about Mishima's Im image in order to create a new Mishima. <clears throat> After I left, <clears throat> I thought I had gone too far. <laughs> I told Daido Moriyama, who was then my assistant, that I was afraid that Mishima would become annoyed with me. I gave the editor 10 photographs. Two days later, I received a call from the editor saying that Mishima, Mr. Mishima was very pleased with the photographs and he thanked me very much. Mishima's first book of his crit critical essays was published in November 1961 under the title, The Attack of Beauty. The assignment was over, but I continued to be excited. I called Mishima to ask if I could continue photographing him at my will. He instantly accepted my offer, asking me 
when is the next session, Mr. Hosoe? My shooting sessions continued until the summer of 1962. I had 10 sessions in total. In the beginning, my ideas were vague, but uh, gradually I came to have a concrete concept that it should be a subjective documentary about Yukio Mishima, interpreted dogmatically by Hosoe in devotion to Mishima. How dogmatic? The theme that flows through the entire body of, of body of work was ultimately life and death. Through Yukio Mishima, borrowing his flesh and using a rose as a visible symbol of beauty and thorns. Throughout the whole session, Mishima was a perfect subject matter, a favorite term of Mishima's. He wrote in the preface for my book, before Hosoe's camera, I soon realized that my own spirit and the working of my mind had become totally redundant. It was an exhilarating experience, a state of affairs I had long dreamed of. Hosoe Mary explored via the medium of his camera. As much as, uh, sorry, much as the novelist uses words and the composer sounds, the various combinations in which the ob objects to be photographed could be placed, and the light and shadow which made these combinations possible. For him, in short, the objects correspond to words and sounds. <clears throat> One day, Mishima showed me many blackened photographic prints of Italian Renaissance paintings by artists such as Raphael and Botticelli. And then he showed me several photographs of paintings of San Sebastian by Raphael. Mishima said, how beautiful it is. Don't you agree? I believe that a person's soul lives in any of his possessions, particularly in art objects which lived together with the artist's soul. Therefore, I compounded the Renaissance paintings Mishima most loved into his body. I utilized anything he possessed and anything he had relationships with because Barakei was meant to be a subjective photographic documentary. Mishima did not have any responsibility at all except to be the subject. <clears throat> During the six months I photographed Mishima, he never acted like a literary giant. He was always carrying a small traveling bag in which he put everything. He was sweet and sincere to those who were serious about things. I'd like to tell you about an episode I once witnessed Mishima often held parties at his home for his intimate friends, which included writers, editors, <clears throat> and artists. On this particular occasion, I, too, had been invited. I, it was the spring of uh, 1965 and, or 1966. About 20 people were invited. Among them were a famous leftist writer and a very popular novelist whose work Mishima loved. As everyone drank and uh, 
engaged in the library chatter, the novelist approached Mishima and said loudly, teach me how to write a novel, please, Mr. Ho Mishima. Everybody laughed because they thought it was a joke. However, the novelist was serious and Mishima took it seriously too. I had the same experience, said Mishima. When I was commissioned to write a novel for a newspaper, I asked the veteran novelist to help me. He ignored my request by saying, don't joke. Mishima then turned to the popular novelist and said, yes, let's talk in the corner. They had a long conversation and I saw the novelist nodding as if he was given good advice. <clears throat> Finally, I must mention something about the change of the English title. When the work was uh, initially published in book form in 1963, the title was Killed by Roses. Mishima and I chose this title together and the publisher agreed to it. Six years later, at the end of 1969, I suggested to Mishima that we publish a new edition of Barakei. He agreed, and then I proposed that we use the regional publisher who accepted. <clears throat> in the beginning of 1970, all those who were involved in the project gathered at Shueisha. The members were Yukio Mishima, Tadanori Yoko, the designer, the editor, and myself. The publisher decided to publish an entirely revised bilingual edition in Japanese and English. At the meeting, Mishima suggested changing the English title, Killed by Roses, because he said it was not close enough to the Japanese title of Barakei, which if translated literally, means punishment of roses. At first, I did not see any reason why the original title should be changed just before the bilingual edition was about to be published, especially since it was already well known in the world. Mishima was firm, however. He was so particular about this opinion that I finally agreed and the English title was changed to Ordeal by Roses, which I like very much. On November 25th, 1970, Yukio Mishima commit, committed suicide. And I understood well why he was so persistent about changing the English title. Barake or Ordeal by Roses became a requiem to Yukio Mishima, a man of genius and sincerity. A new English edition will be published next fall by Aperture. Thank you very much. I'm not a writer, so I don't really uh, write speeches. I just have footnotes, you have to forgive me. Um, as a Chinese artist, I have every reason to dislike Mishima, 
And if you know the relationship between China and Japan, the long history of influence, conflict, and automatically when you grow up during Cultural Revolution uh, in 20th century, and you also understand the Japanese war, Japanese invasion against China, so that when China is finally opening its door in the later 70s, when China has to revitalize its own culture, looking for inspiration, Japan becomes the first model of transformation from ancient civilization into modern time. Therefore, Mishima was the first author also coming into Chinese book market. And Mishima was, still is, a great inspiration. As I said before, when China was the first open store, the problem of understanding how to adapt its ancient civilization into a modern society and how to understand not to replicate what Western has done, but make its own modern. Mishima serves his voice, his novel, though all this I read in Chinese. And uh, you recognize some of the characters, that some images have become very vivid. And uh, curiously, his Chinese name, and we call him Shandao Yujifu. And uh, it actually says, literally, a memorable man from a mountain island. And um, he was, in many degree, to a, a teenage, when I read him in the late 70s, uh, a voice of youth, the voice of radical a generation. That generation is concerned of changing that false or fake so-called um, traditional culture, want to reinvite, revitalize this classic culture. By means, by way of doing so, Mishima borrows so much from Western culture. Of, and his life and his obsession and his aesthetics that made him serve his life as a work of art. There aren't many artists I consider that life is art, that there isn't distinguishing or separation. Perhaps you can think about Van Gogh. And what I'm very interested here I'd like to talk about is his only Japanese author actually attempted to write no theater. As a theater artist, one always think how to revitalize a classic theater form. No, to me, has always been a ritual that no was never rep representing or reflecting this apparent reality. Somehow, no always reflected what has passed and the world of imagination. And the starting point of no is to recall the past, the memory. Well, Mishima has tried and has written this no theater is done entirely in modern clothes. And he has put modern Japanese character, even though it's archetype, uh, into a stage very similar, very similar to Chinese artists trying to accomplish 
in the early 2030s when people thought Ibsen, Bernard Shaw, Eugene O'Neill, those writers, and a lot of Chinese classic opera actors also trying to imitate the same kind of gesture, trying to bring this urgent to bring the reflection of this life onto stage. So what you watch is not merely the past, but also today. And uh, ironically, this search of new cultural identity on modern Japan or my concern as modern China has not come to resolution that many of these borrowed, I call it borrowed theater, that the ideal, the inspiration and the conception is borrowed, therefore stays as uh, outside elements, although it's forced in. And that is not like generic products, that it's not really grow from its own culture. It's not derived or continued from its own ancient civilization. That when I started doing the Piano Pavilion, the Chinese opera, I faced the same kind of criticism with Chinese officials or certain, certain Chinese audience that um, by attempting to go back what was before, what was beautiful, that nobody or we no longer see anymore in our daily existence. That the bring back what was then the glory of that civilization. I seem run into a problem with people believing this um, a decorative or fake traditional culture from clothing articles to lantern, red lanterns, that is all that means or identify with what is cultural identity. And Mishima's archer nationalism was also something scares most of Chinese and but also inspires most Chinese artists in my generation because to be proud of one's country, to be proud of one's race and one's identity and a lot of searching, a lot of searching and work is based on that. And so later, 70s, early 80s, we call this Chinese Renaissance time that Mishima was a huge voice and in Beijing, in street market, one could always buy a newly translated Mishima novel. And buying newly translated no play, his modern no play, and uh, finding photos of Mishima, as many of you have seen. And it's something many artists shared, found exciting, and found that there is close to China, a society, an ancient society, come to the modern time, there is somebody trying to accomplish something. There is this disturbance in his work that represents or we could identify to. And in the late 80s and even early 90s, his book was still well sold in China. And 
although I had never had chance to see his No Theater, I'm very fond of reading it, and uh, was very strange coming to America and reading all his work again in English. And um, I can only say his passion, obsession, and his body of work has been a tremendous inspiration at the open time of China, being many, many generations of Chinese young artists that has inspired many of us today. Thank you very much. きれいな景色ってな。地獄だな。右側の女連れてってやってこいよ。どうせ嘘ついてる。でも、どう、どう思うんだよ。登場させるんだ。そのドモルに殺させるんだ。そのために連れてきてやったんじゃない。どもれよ。こんなどもにでも惚れる物好きはいるかもしれない。いや、どもらはるのへえ、なんや変な人ばっかりやな。じゃあ、2組に分かれようか。2時間後にまたここでな。
그랬노 지랬다이나 나이야 야빨이가 詰めるほどのことじゃないすぐに忘れるさ何もかも無力なんやどうしたんだい逃げられたのかこんなに小さかったのにものすごい大きなって目がくらんでとはの美しさっちゅうのは怖いもんやでどんどんどんどん大きなって何もかも潔いんにしろよ美しさなんて虫歯みたいなもんじゃないか下に触っていたんでその存在を主張するだろうそれでとうとうその痛みに耐えられなくなって歯医者に抜いてもらうところがその血まみれの小さな歯を手のひらに取
よかったえそんな渋い顔してあんまりようなかったんか僕の名前よう覚えときや二三日中に新聞にデカデカと載るさかい<笑>何がおかしいんや今日そんな嘘ばっかり真面目な顔してからに<笑>嘘とちゃう<笑>ほんまにどでかいことするんや<笑>たまらんわ<笑>A face like new fallen snow, unaware of what lies ahead, end quote, who matures into a right wing terrorist. In the third novel, he's reborn as a Thai princess who also dies young of a snake bite. In the last, he's a handsome, cruel young lighthouse keeper. The reincarnated person can always be identified by a certain birthmark. And the identification gets accomplished by the other protagonist, whose name is Shigakuni Honda and who is a judge. Perfect profession for a soul whose task it is to decide what might or might not be true and what existence means. In the first novel, he muses about Kiyoaki, quote, Up until now, I thought it best as his friend, 
to pretend not to notice, even if he were in his death agonies, out of respect for that elegance of his, end quote. In fact, Honda never succeeds in preventing anybody's death agonies. Scrupulous, empathetic, intelligent, aching to understand, and ultimately impotent, Honda might as well be a novelist. In effect, then, there are two main characters in this long work, the observer and the observed. Is the observed really one soul who comes to life four times, or has Honda deluded himself because he longs for supernatural coherence? Mishima was both Honda and Kyoki, the one and the myriad. As an artist, he could create, but creation can never substitute for action. Action, on the other hand, may be powerful, but cannot transcend ephemerality. Action dies, as does Kiyoki, and as did ultimately Mishima himself, whose carefully politicized, aestheticized suicide was not only rabidly absurd, but a failure on its own terms. The troops refused to rally to his calls for emperor worship. At least Izao, the kendo athlete of the second book, succeeds in assassinating somebody before he cuts his belly open. Mishima was ultimately more like Honda than like Izao, which is not a terrible thing. While he may be sterile in the sense that he will not bring about any great event, his empathy will endure. Honda's seeking, his sincerity, his fidelity to that not necessarily well-founded belief in the reincarnations, these are the strands of perception, conceptualization, and devotion which sustain the patterns of reoccurrence into something permanent and precious. Without Honda, the young man and the young woman who share nothing but a certain birthmark and a predilection to secret self-absorptions would not have added up to any collective thing. Thanks to him, they embody a sacred mystery. That is why Honda can be likened to the immense display case in the Mishima Yukio Literary Museum, where our author's books shine as colorfully frozen as any collection of immaculate butterflies. So Honda is Mishima, and the butterflies, the various versions of Kiyoki, are also Mishima, whose strangely plastic features, and this is a quality more often pertaining to women, seem capable of forming themselves into any number of vastly dissimilar faces. Sometimes in the photographs, his very head appears elongated, as though he were Cambodian or Vietnamese. At other times, it's rounder, like the clay head of some Assyrian idol. That frequently very sensitive and delicate face, that Kiyoki face, can on occasion appear bleached and bleak like an aging prisoner's, or harden into that stereotyped clay vulgarity which I have seen in the attitudes of tattooed Yakuza gangsters posing for my press camera. This is, perhaps, an attempt on Mishima's part to embody himself as Izao, the suicide terrorist. We have Mishima, the suit and tie man, Mishima, the flashy dancer, caught from above and grainily a la Ouija, Mishima, the artful poser in the dark kimono polka-dotted with light. And they are all his expressions of self, his legitimate incarnations, but only the Mishima called Honda sits down to the desk, 
on which the bronze or brass letter opener surmounted with the medallion of a Caucasian's head, a certain Emperor Napoleon, I believe, lies beside a miniature sword. Two very Japanese-looking metal fishes and a metal lizard bask eternally by a golden Parker pen. It is Honda who writes at the end of Runaway Horses, the instant that the blade tore open his flesh, the bright disk of the sun soared up and exploded behind his eyelids. This defines Mishima's agony. As he writes in that eerie confession, Sun and Steel, in the average person, I imagine, the body precedes language. In my case, words came first of all, then came the flesh. It was already sadly wasted by words. First comes the pillar of white wood, then the white ants that feed on it. But for me, the white ants were there from the start, and the pillar of plain wood emerged tardily, already half eaten away. Kiyoki has the body, of course, and Honda the words. And the words despise themselves, knowing that their own fulfillment necessarily spoils the body with sedentariness. But without the words to define and cohere, the body lapses into its own separate incarnations. And even its most dramatic self-expressions, its mutilations and orgasms, cannot win to the understanding which words make possible and which will keep the body's consciousness whole. For all his athletic poses toward the end, the mere existence of the Mishima Yukio Literary Museum suffices to prove that the body was not enough for that novelist, that like Kiyoke, he was too restless to stay in one body, that he wanted to be the man of a thousand faces, even if the close-cropped hair, the half-smoked cigarette, failed to remove him as much as he thought they did from kinship with the small boy who dresses up as a sailor. Yes, incarnation is restless, and so in some photographs, Mishima, whom my own Japanese translator thinks of as, quote, definitely gifted, but somehow not really sure how to cope with the gift, end quote, wears a radiant, if at times hysterically radiant, smile, the white teeth tight together. In other images, he's trying to look stern. In those bodybuilder portraits, Mishima is rounded and drawn in on himself, transformed into clay, a stolid corporeality, which expresses itself more loudly than the inner spirit. But I suspect that the spirit, which accentuated that corporeality because it loathes itself, feels tormented by that loudness and dares not confess it. Could that be one reason that Mishima chose death? About that death, or at least about its supposed inevitability, a little more should be said. In Sun and Steel, he bitterly complains about the fact that men cannot objectify themselves. And from the context, it's evident that he means objectify their bodies as women can. Quote, he can only be objectified through the supreme action, which is, I suppose, the moment of death, the moment when, even without being seen, the fiction of being seen and the beauty of the object are permitted. Of such is the beauty of the suicide squad." End quote. Mishima wrote those words in that languorously white house of his, 
which might be considered a little peculiar for the abode of a Japanese nationalist, given its urns, its Greekish statues, and its European horoscope mosaic, that house which serenely buys and forebodes behind its white wall. If anything, it makes me think of the residence of the minister Kirahara in the second volume of the tetralogy, Runaway Horses, whom Mizao stabs to death in punishment for the crime of sacrilege. Kirahara is, among other things, another Honda. The body hates the words, so at least the self-hating words say. The body freely, guiltlessly kills and copulates, marches, overthrows, makes history. It can do everything, but what's it made of? The white ants are already eating it. When Mishima, naked but for his loincloth, sits on the tatami mat for another photograph, if you knew him only by this image, you wouldn't suspect that he lives amidst French engravings of 19th century experimental balloons. When Mishima leans on the staff of his sheathed sword, his face, which to others, including himself, may evince resolution, to me betrays resignation, even vacancy, as if it cannot escape its own clay. And yet that house, with its erotic luxury and its hallmarks of foreign possibilities, that cosmopolitan house which Izawa would never live in, that house was a perfect womb for a creative mind. He could have become soft and fat living in that house. In his study stand Japanese brushes in a lacquerware cylinder, an elegantly slender calligraphy box, a block of scarlet ink for what I think is a stamp or seal. With these objects, perhaps he could have incarnated himself into a living exemplar of the Japanese tradition which he imagined he had to die for. He could have chosen any number of fates, and it may be significant that the tense, gruesome, runaway horses, whose hero kills himself more or less as Mishima did, is not the final novel of the Tetralogy, but the second. What if Mishima had outlived his own death? Honda is condemned to outlive, is condemned to outlive Izao's seppuku for two more volumes, in which nothing nearly as dramatic will occur. In the third novel, The Temple of Dawn, Honda witnesses what he thinks is Kiyoki's reincarnation in the person of that beautiful, mysterious Thai princess. Mishima's mood becomes richly tropical here, and the discourses into Buddhist theology, which irritate some readers, to me evince a last flowering of intellectual excitement on Honda's part as he continues to attempt to find and Mishima attempts to convey, perhaps to feel, the meaning of existence. But halfway through this novel, the famous aridity has already set in. Lovesickness, ideological rapture, and divine mysteries are done. The final book, The Decay of the Angel, exudes a suffocatingly existential quality. It's all about waiting for death, not the joyfully fanatical death of runaway horses, the death which Mishima tried unjoyfully to die, but the death of the white ants. Reading The Temple of Dawn always makes me feel that the tetralogy's end and Mishima's corresponding finish were not preordained. The enigmatic little Thai princess offers the prospect of something different, something not only as erotic as suicide, but perhaps more elusive, 
something worthwhile enough to warrant not killing oneself while one tries to uncover it. Very possibly, if the Temple of Dawn is any indication, this something could have been religion or philosophy. I wonder how feverishly Mishima hunted for it in his wood-clawed study with its bookshelved walls. He didn't find it, and that is why every year on November 25th, the white-clawed Shinto priests lay down their prayer streamers on the altar, which resembles a tabletop model of round-towered castles, and the blood-red disc of the Hinomaru flag hangs above them in the darkness beside Mishima's portrait. やるの。はい。やる気が起こらないです。何? しないじゃ限界があって。本当の力は出ないんです。はい。はい。失礼します。堀中井殿。剣道の三段だそうだな。なかなか先が楽しみなことだ。はあ。仲間と帰ったのか。はい。何人いるんだ。二十人です。まあ、それ。しかし、どうやって一息に一晩で財界の車を片っ端から片付けて日銀に火をつけます。夜明けに海原で置いて陛下に体験を開始するんです。しかし、お前たちは断崖の上で登る日の前で輝く海を見下ろしながら自決するの
長崎公爵新川男爵松平爵その半数など斎藤首相一人に絞れば倉原武助あいつ一人やれば日本はよくなるで俺にどうしろと言うんだ激分散布のために飛行機を一機そして変電所爆破のためのダイナマイトを手に入れていただきたいんですで武器を刀だけでやりますギリギリのところでは刀一本でやるべきなんですしかしお前ら学生に真剣が使えるのかあったんですか。結果が中止しろ。バレたんですか。いや。だが危険だ。実は急に満州へ飛ばされることになったのだ。これなしではとても。じゃあせめて飛行機だけでも手に入りませんか。いや、無駄だ。中止するんだ。でも
分かってますじゃあ君らは命を懸けようというんだな何の期待も希望を持たずに何もないかもしれないんだぞはい、はい純粋に身を挺して邪神歓喜を払わぬ一つ我らは同志に助けて国難に赴かぬ一つ我らは万死を持て維新の礎となら金曜夜10時だしかし毎日の場合に備えていつでも決行できるように準備するんだいいな何か意義のあるものは個人的都合でもあれば死ぬと決めたものに個人的都合なんてありますか<笑><笑>よしいいなじゃあ蔵原手付近の地図は照川かそうだよ剣道三段だそうだがこんなことやるより剣道に専念しておればあそこで俺と愉快にお手合わせができたものを今稽古してるんですか君らは若いから純粋すぎるんだよただもうちょっと気持ちを抑えればいいんだいやほんのちょっとでも抑えたらもう純粋ではなくなってしまいますそんな完全に純粋なことなどありえないよあります純粋に生きるということは血しぶきで一行の詩を書くことなんですまあ落ち着けよ死に急ぎすることだけが全てではないんだ陛下とて人の命はかけがえのないもんだと思っていらっしゃる君の思想は悪くはないただなもうちょっとだけ手段をやらなければいいんだな本気で扱ってください僕の思想が間違ってなかったら結婚させてください手なきゃ皆と同じように拷問されるべきです困ったやつだね拷問してくださいなぜ
だから儚いやつが拷問されるお前みたいに何もかも喋りたがるやつはその必要はないんだよ Again. I, I, I think you must be exhausted by now, and I'm, I'm exhausted having racked my brain for something to say to top that act, and I, I think really I should just uh, thank you all for coming and leave, but I'll, 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 I'll say two very, very brief uh, additional um, remarks about Mishma. Firstly, there's the question of translating him into English, since most of us here are reading Yukio Mishima in the English language, which was not the language in which he wrote. Um, having spent a lot of my time translating Mishima and Kenzaburo Oe, who are two diametrically opposed writers, uh, I can, I, I, it's useful for me to contrast them for you in terms of the immense challenge that they present uh, the translator. Uh, a writer's language, obviously, is uh, shaped and it, it mirrors uh, the, that writer's sense of where he is in the society that he grows up in and where he's coming from. Um, Oe Kenzaburo considered himself, considers himself a liminal writer working on the periphery of Japan. Uh, he's an outsider looking in, and his language uh, accordingly constitutes a kind of an assault 
on everything that the Japanese language has inherently and naturally inside itself as a means of expression. Junichiro Tanizaki, the Japanese novelist, at one point reading Oe, said, uh, if this is Japanese, I'm going to kill myself because it was a, such a, a, a strained and a contorted language which nonetheless in Oe's hands becomes poetic. Uh, the difficulty of translating it is, is unimaginable. It's basically impossible to translate and each sentence um, is an agony and an ordeal. Mishima, on the other hand, who as we know now, having listened to this uh, presentation this evening, uh, not, considered himself and insisted that he existed at the very center of the Japanese tradition of words that longing for beauty and so on that he took inside himself and embodied was his uh, notion of himself as being inside the language. And as a result, uh, he's much easier to translate because he was a gorgeous word master and he weighed out every word very carefully in, in a kind of mosaic. And if the translator is able to understand him and then spends the right enough time looking for the proper stones, it's possible to inlay them into the syntax of an English sentence and paragraph and book without breaking the back of that sentence, which is what happens in Oe's case. And so it is possible uh, to represent him in English that is uh, at least something similar, close to the kind of beauty of language that he achieved. Finally, um, as you've seen tonight, it's very hard to talk about Mishima the writer without invoking Mishima uh, the individual and Mishima the the suicide, and uh, Jay McInerney asked, I thought very interestingly and provocatively, you know, what if he had been hit by a car or died of an aneurysm before the final year? Uh, the question being, is he, how important a writer is he? Forgetting all about uh, the other stuff that we've all been talking about, uh, not all of us, uh, Bill Volman did a very nice literary job, but a lot of what's been said tonight by me principally is really extra textual. So the question is, you know, how important is he? Um, very near the end of his life, uh, Mishima said about himself in the kind of paradox he learned from Oscar Wilde, quote, I am a realist who attempts to depict with complete reality a romantic psychology which cannot be found in nature. Now, uh, that's a sort of, it's dangerous sometimes to take a writer at, at face value when he says something like that, but in this case, I think Mishima was telling the truth. It's not so surprising since he himself uh, was a man who was not to be found in nature in the sense that he built himself uh, into the complex creature that he became. So uh, uh, what I'm, where I'm heading here is that I believe that individual works of Mishima are often marred by a kind of contrivance, a kind of schematicness. Uh, characters can tend to dangle somewhat helplessly from the strings of the master puppeteer who has them move in dramas and to reveal themselves in ways that are really unfamiliar to us because they're not something that we have experienced. And the result of that is, I think, often uh, that we can be very moved by the gorgeousness of the man's work, which is often gorgeous, and by beautiful and unforgettable scenes. But finally, in the final analysis, with, with some exceptions, uh, we find it hard to identify and hard to feel that this man's art has opened a window for us on a world that we know as our own and shown us something about our own lives. Um, that said, um, I think there are writers uh, about whom it can be said perhaps that the entire oeuvre, the complete works, is in a certain sense a monument to invention and diligence and passion, which uh, is possibly greater and more important than any individual work uh, he or she may have read, uh, written. Uh, Balzac may be such a person, Thackeray may be such a person, certainly Mishima, I believe, was such a person. Um, however, it, it remains uh, a truth that this man's enormous um, commitment and his passion and his focus uh, and his invention uh, is something which 
uh, moves us in the final analysis, even if we are put off by an artificiality that may mark some of his individual works. Uh, very near the end of his life, uh, he said um, in a pamphlet he wrote about a, an exhibition of photos about him, if I could remember each hour of my life I spent weighing out words like a pharmacist with his scale, I would surely go mad. And if I leave you with that, I'd just like to say that in front of that kind of passion and artistic commitment, uh, we finally must stand in awe. Thank you and good night and have a great time. Thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it.